Um, well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Thomas, and I have the honor of being one of the pastors here at Elevate City. And I get the privilege of continuing our series through First Peter. And today, we're going to be in the second half of chapter four on Mission Sunday. And there could not be a more perfect scripture for Mission Sunday. You know, last week, Joey uh, taught us what it means to think different. And he challenged us in the ways that we approach our time, our relationship, and our desire. And tonight, I want to start with this question. When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you shared your faith? As we dive into this chapter deeper, my hope is two things. Number one, my hope is that as somebody who deeply cares about the nations and missions, is that we would never forget that there are people all over the world right now who are suffering for the advancement of the gospel. There are people who are doing whatever it takes to see people come to know Jesus to the ends of the earth. My second goal is boldness. My hope tonight is that Peter's words in this text would stir up boldness in our hearts, that this word would challenge us to start to live boldly in our everyday life. So let's jump in. Verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Have you ever been surprised by something that happened in your life or caught off guard by something that came your way. You could have even known it was going to happen, but you didn't realize how hard it was going to be. Um, I was recently really surprised by how hard it is to care for a baby. It is very difficult. So my wife and I, we just had a baby in January, and his name is Rory. He's adorable. Um, but I did not realize how hard it, hard it is to be a parent. And when your wife is pregnant, everybody tells you how difficult it is. Like, Joey, Joe, they told me all the time, it is really hard to care for a child. And sure enough, just ignore them. Just, I'm sure I've got it under control. I'm sure I can figure it out. And then, you know, you have the child and you're in the hospital. And when you're in the hospital, it's kind of like a false expectation because there's all these nurses and they're kind of doing everything. Like, they're caring for the baby, and they're caring for mom. They're not caring for you, which is good. Um, but they're caring for the baby, and they're changing his diaper, and they're rocking him to sleep, and they're making sure he's taken care of. And it's awesome. You're like, this is adorable. We, we created this. this is, we made this thing. It's awesome. And then you leave the hospital, and the car seat comes into the hospital room. Mom takes a cute picture of dad and is like, we're leaving. We're going home. And you get in the car, and you sit there, and you're like, what have I just done? You're like, do I know how to care for this child? And you make your way home, and all of a sudden, it's the middle of the night, and this baby is not sleeping. And you start to think to yourself, nobody taught me how to do this. Like, everybody told me it was going to be hard, but I didn't realize it was going to be this hard. And so I just want to show you my Google search history one night at 3 a.m. as I was trying to figure out how to care for a child. Let me just... It says Sunday morning. It was 5 a.m. Um, newborn not sleeping tips and tricks. Should my new, newborn on night three sleep easily? Can a two-day-old sleep with pacifier? How to calm fussy baby. I want to skip this other one because it doesn't make sense, and I'm embarrassed. Also, it was typed into Google Maps. 
can a two day, can a two six at, at 3298 at SAE into Google Maps? Clearly I had no idea what I was doing. Clearly I'm very lost at this time, but I was surprised and I was really caught off guard. And again, I knew it was gonna be difficult, but I didn't know it was gonna be this difficult. Peter, as someone who has been through every kind of suffering for what it means to be a Christian, is writing to his audience and he's begging them. He is pleading and urging them to not be surprised when suffering comes their way. You see, some of us have said yes to this fantasized, simple version of Christianity that promised us a good life and simplicity. And yet Peter is telling us it's actually the opposite. See, I believe for many of us, we are currently in the same place of our faith as I was three nights into being a dad. A little surprised, thrown off, and confused. Like, why hasn't the world welcomed my faith with open arms. Maybe tonight you find yourself wanting to be bold, but you're upset that your friends, they don't care about your church. Or you're discouraged that your coworkers don't wanna hear it. You're hopeless that your family members change the subject every time you bring up your faith. And tonight we need to let this word encourage us. Wherever you are tonight, we need to realize that the fiery trial that Peter is mentioning may not be here now, but it will be one day. And so part of my job tonight is to give you a foundation to stand on for when it does happen. So go with me for a second. What happens when we aren't allowed to share the gospel? Like what happens to us, the believers here in Atlanta, Georgia, when we're not allowed to share the gospel? Let me give you a picture of just what could happen. One year from now, your faith might be the brunt of everyone's joke. Your kids might get detention for simply talking about their faith. Your job, it might restrict a simple invite card in the workplace. What about 10 years from now, you might get Fined for posting Jesus-centered content on social media. You might be fired for inviting a coworker to our church. Your kids might not be allowed to go to the same school or play in the same sports as everybody else just because of your involvement in the church. 20 years from now, worship songs could be denied access to all streaming apps. Churches and small groups might only be allowed to meet on certain nights and certain times of the week. Mission trips and evangelism could be illegal. Now, this may sound drastic, but just know that this is happening all over the world. And there are Christians who are resilient to suffer through it. So when this happens, will you be surprised at the fiery trial? Will you cower in fear or will you pursue the gospel and advance it with boldness? If you aren't bold now, you won't be bold then. If you aren't bold now, you will not be bold then. Notice that he says fiery trial. If we're going to understand the fiery trial, then we need to understand how God speaks in the fire. If you look at the Bible, you can find time and time again that there is fire and God is actually speaking in that fire. God shows up in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God appears to Moses in the form of fire in the burning bush. God reveals himself to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. 
I had to read this one because it was so epic. Exodus 19, 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went like up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It is normal in the Bible for people to have this interaction with God in fire. And so Peter is saying all of these things to encourage us. You see, sometimes we see our suffering as a place where God removes our presence. But what Peter is trying to show us is that in the fiery trial, in our suffering, God is actually there. What if your suffering is where God wants to speak to you the loudest? This is part of what it means to be a Jesus follower. One of the most transformative seasons, seasons of my life was when I spent a year and I just prayed every day. God, whatever you want to do in my life, as long as it pushes me to love you more and experience your, more of your presence, let it happen. Every day, just God, whatever fiery trial you want to send my way, whatever test you want to refine me, whatever way you want to shape me and mold me, as long as it pushes me to love you more, let it happen. What would your life look like? How would your approach to suffering change if you started to pray that prayer? where you just started to posture yourself towards the fiery trial. The text gets better and better. In verse 13, it says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice the scripture doesn't say, Rejoice and share in Christ's sufferings as long as you don't lose your job. Or rejoice and share in Christ's sufferings as long as you get to keep all your nice things. Or rejoice and share in Christ's sufferings as long as you keep people's approval. There's none of that. But it says, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. As I was studying for this week, I came across this quote by Charles Spurgeon, specifically on verse 13. This is what it says. If you do not share in Christ's humiliation, how can you expect to share in his exaltation? But if worldlings begin to rebuke and reproach you, take it for granted that they can discern something of Christ in you. Dogs do not usually bark at those who live in the same village. It is only at strangers that they bark. Spurgeon, he understood that what Peter was trying to tell us was that we have an eternal home. This is not our home. Are you living for the approval of the dogs or are you living for the approval of your king? How are you embracing suffering? Do not forget that the way, do not forget that, that we follow a king who suffered for us. He was beaten and mocked. He was betrayed and made fun of. He was spit on. And then yet even in this, the king of the universe came down to live with us and to lay down his life for us as sheep. We want the blessings of following Jesus, but we don't want the suffering. Some of us, we want the resurrection in our lives, but we don't want the crucifixion. We want the gospel to advance, but we won't lay down our lives for others. We want the church to grow, but we refuse to serve the bride the way that Jesus did. We want the good shepherd who would lay down his life for us, yet we are resistant to lay down our comfort, our selfishness, our nice things, our good life, so that others can meet him. 
following Jesus, it costs something. Following Jesus costs something. And the early church, they shared in the crucifixion of Christ. Therefore, they saw the multiplication of Christ. Notice that in the Bible, anytime persecution happens, multiplication follows. Anytime you see persecution in the Bible, multiplication always follows. Check this out. Jesus, he dies on the cross, and Pentecost follows, and thousands of people get saved. In the midst of intense persecution in the book of Acts, it says that people were trying to kill Christians, and in the midst of that, in Acts 9.31, it says, So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up in the midst of persecution. And walking in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, not the comfort of others, it multiplied. In the face of persecution, the church grew the church multiplies. No breaking into new territory hasn't come with sac without sacrifice. Like, just take a moment and just realize that you are here tonight. You are sitting in this church, hearing the word of God, being able to worship with this awesome band. You are able to come to church because somebody laid down their life so that we could experience the gospel. Like, people kept sacrificing and they kept living boldly so that the gospel could make its way to us. Verse 14 says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Have you ever been insulted? Like just right now, just reflect on that. Has somebody ever insulted you so badly for being a Christian that it was searing to your soul, that it was insulting that it was humiliating that you still think about it to this day like has somebody ever insulted you for being a Christian just think about that second question would you say that you are above and beyond absolutely blessed would you say that you're above and beyond absolutely blessed could it be that Peter is trying to get us to realize that there is a deep connection between suffering for Jesus and experiencing his goodness? There is this connection in the Bible that if you suffer for Jesus, then you experience more and more of his presence. I'm challenged by this text to think that has my resistance to be bold, has my resistance to share the gospel with my neighbors or to share the gospel with my family or to share the gospel with my friends or to not go places that I didn't want to go, has that stopped me from actually experiencing more of the presence of Jesus? I wonder if we would actually suffer more for Jesus if we were living in complete obedience to him. One of my favorite stories um, in church history is about a guy named Ignatius and I know that all of you guys are dying to hear a story about a church history guy um, on Memorial Day weekend, and so I'm going to tell you it. And so there's this guy named Ignatius, and he was discipled directly by the disciple John. And so John teaches Ignatius what it means to be a Jesus follower. He teaches him how to follow Jesus and to lead people to do the same, just like we say all the time here. And so he pours into Ignatius, and then Peter who writes this book, actually is the one who ordains Ignatius as one of the leaders of the Christian movement, which is so cool that, like, he's passing the, tor the torch of the Christian movement to this guy, Ignatius. And one of the most notable things about Ignatius was that he was so willing to sacrifice everything for the name of Jesus. 
Like he was one of the most bold leaders that existed in, in, that, in that church movement at the time. He, was, he wanted to live, breathe, and die for Jesus. Not because he just wanted to die. Like that's not, his, that's not what I'm saying here. He just wanted to sacrifice for who he loved. And so sure enough, Ignatius gets sentenced to life, to, to die in, by getting eaten by lions. And so they say, Ignatius, he won't stop talking about Jesus. He won't stop leading others to follow Jesus. And so we are going to punish him by putting him in the Roman Colosseum, and he's going to be fed to lions for his faith. And so sure enough, they load Ignatius in this boat, and he sets out for his destination, the Colosseum of Rome. And as he's on his way there, the word gets out to this Christian movement that they're trying to kill their boy, Ignatius. And so they're like, we've got to protect our boy, Ignatius. And we've got to figure out how to free him from this punishment and free him from this death. And so word gets to Ignatius as he's on his way there that there are people trying to break him free. And this is what he writes to them. For my part, I am writing to all of the churches and assuring them that I am truly in earnest about dying for God. If only you yourself but no obstacles in the way, I must implore you to do me no such untimely kindness. Pray, leave me to be a meal for the beasts, for it is they who can provide my way to God. I am as wheat ground fine by lion's teeth to be made purest bread for Christ. When there is no trace of my body left for the world to see, then I shall truly be Jesus Christ's disciple. So intercede with him for me, that by their instrumentality I may be made a sacrifice to God. How I look forward to the real lions that have been got ready for me. Let every horrid and diabolical torment come upon me, provided only that I can win my way to Christ. Ignatius was eager to suffer for Christ. Nothing was getting in his way of seeing this desire fulfilled and Jesus magnified in his story. Like, can you imagine being this in love with Jesus? Now, I don't imagine that most of us in this room living in Sandy Springs are going to be eaten by lions. At least I hope not. And so it causes you to think, though, how does this story apply to my life? And what it did is it forced me to ask this question, what are you willing to sacrifice to him? What are you willing to sacrifice to him? Are you willing to turn down the world for Jesus? Are you willing to die to your sin? What about your selfishness or your comfort? or your status, or your reputation, or your job, or your income, or your relationships, would you willingly bring these to God and sacrifice those for your love for him? He goes on to say in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. That word meddler means someone who is all up in people's business, or it can even mean gossip. And so we need to remember that the believers that Peter is writing to are being beaten, they're being killed, they're being outcasts, they're losing jobs. And so Peter is reminding them that even though all of these bad things are happening to them, that they still should only suffer for Jesus and not as a sinner. And here, Peter is instructing them to, to suffer for Jesus and not sin. You know, one commentary says, while on one hand, we are exhorted to be ready to suffer for being rightly related to God, we are likewise told to be sure not to suffer for being wrongly related to men. 
If Jesus were to come back today, how would he find you? Would he find you suffering for the ways of Jesus or would he find you suffering for the ways of men? Yet if anyone suffers, this is verse 16, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Everyone say Christian. Christian. We are Christians. And I know that there's this almost anti-Christian movement that has come about recently where, you know, the word Christian, it tends to intimidate our non-believing friends or it has this negative connotation, yet this is who we are. And the Bible, it's not anti-Christian. The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. One historian tells us that followers of Herod were known as Herodians. Likewise, those loyal to Caesar were known as Caesarians. And this appears to be the wit which the name Christian was formed. Those who were loyal to Christ were Christians. And so they give this name to Christians almost as if to say, those guys, those guys are the guys who won't stop talking about and worshiping and listening to the teachings of the guy who died on the cross and said that he was God. Like those guys, they're Christians because their loyalty is to Christ. And so the Bible is not anti-Christian, and so we shouldn't be either. This makes me think of family names. We all have last names. My last name is Cheeseman. Cheeseman, just like it sounds, it's wild. Um, and in middle school, my, my email was gudaboy911. Gudaboy, you can probably still email it. I'm not going to read it. Um, I don't know why that 911 was there. It was just to remind myself that if I needed help, that's the number to call. Um, but gudaboy911 was my email. And Cheeseman is my last name. And, you know, last names, they tell this story. They tell this rich history of legacy and of character and um, when we had our son, one of the things that I thought about was, I want Rory to grow up knowing what it means to be a cheeseman. Like, I want him to know that it's not just some silly last name, but there's an identity attached to it. That there is something attached to what it means to be a cheeseman. And so some, these are some of the things that I pray that Rory will say one day about what it means to be a cheeseman. Cheesemans are unbelievably kind to our neighbors, regardless of their race, background, or story. Cheesemans are bold and fearless to take the gospel to places that it's not. Cheesemans love to have fun, adventure to new places, and celebrate every win. Cheesemans are full of contagious joy under every circumstance. Cheesemans don't stop talking about discipleship, connection, and mission. Group leaders, if you know, you know. Cheesemans live for eternity and are passionately obsessed with Jesus. This is what I want Rory and our future kids to say about what it means to be a cheeseman one day. Could it be that we don't actually have to redefine the word Christian and we just need to rediscover the beauty in our family name? That there is this rich, beautiful history of resilient disciples that lived as Christians and this is how we are supposed to suffer. You see, for Peter, this is what a Christian meant. A Christian was somebody who was resilient. They were willing to do anything in order to, to sacrifice for their savior. Christians were fearless. Christians were bold. Christians were loving. They worshiped Jesus with passion and grit. They loved others with grace and truth. Christians feared no evil and they sacrificed everything so that Jesus could get the glory and the gospel could advance. This is what it means to be a Christian. How would somebody define the word Christian if they looked at your life, 
if they looked at your actions and they looked at your words and they gave you a definition of what it means to be a Christian based off that? What would they come up with? Next, he says, let him not be ashamed. Peter is providing a theological shift in how these believers saw suffering. You see, previously they would have understood suffering as a result of their disobedience. If you look at the Old Testament, you see this all throughout. Adam and Eve take a bite from the apple and they are banished from the garden. Jonah, he rejects God's call to Nineveh and he gets swallowed by a whale. Moses sins and he never sees the promised land. And so suffering typically meant shame. It meant I've done something wrong and Peter is encouraging that this isn't the case. If you are suffering, it is possible that you are doing the very thing that you need to be doing to advance the gospel and for Jesus to get all the glory. And so he's providing them this theological understanding. And Piper, John Piper, he says this about this verse. He says, the mark of a Christian is that he experiences deeper and greater joy in being dishonored with Christ than he does in being honored by men. See, Peter, he knew what he was talking about. He had experienced it. According to Acts 5.41, after being beaten with the other apostles, he left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. If you admire and love someone tremendously and you get lumped together with them and treated the same way, it is a great honor. I love that Piper shows us that Peter, he had experienced this and it pushed him into greater love and joy in Jesus. A lot of us, we're scared to face the dishonor and we haven't even faced it yet. Like we're scared to face the dishonor of what somebody could say to us or how they could insult us and we haven't even faced it yet. And could we find that we actually experience more honor in being dishonored for the name of Jesus than we could ever imagine? Verse 17 and 18, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter is taking a moment to remind us that all of us will be judged. But how much worse is it gonna be for those who don't know Jesus? How much worse is it going to be for those who do not respond to the gospel? Like, does this burden us in light of eternity, knowing that there is going to be a place called heaven and there is a place called hell? Like, does this burden us that there are people who are going to die and spend an eternity apart from God? We all ask this question, what will happen? What would happen if I were to die today? But have you ever asked the question, what would happen if my neighbor were to die today? Or what would happen if that person who sits across the room at work were to die today? Or what would happen if my family member were to die today? Does eternity burden us knowing that there are people who are going to spend an eternity apart from him? The only way for us to not suffer for being a Christian is by not talking about Jesus. Like if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to live on mission, if you want to be a, a part of this, then the only way that you will not suffer is by not talking about him. And so this has forced me to ask, what do we do about this? Well, my prayer for this church is that Elevate City would be so burdened that we share the gospel in some of the darkest places in the world. 
My hope is one day that we could say Belgium went from being the most unchurched country in Europe to the modern day hub for disciple makers. That India became safe for girls to grow up believing in their worth and persecution only led to the advancement of the gospel. That Clarkson became the closest picture of heaven we have and it was crowded with nationalities, tribes, and tongues all lifting high the name of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That Nicaragua was the country kids grew up in to experience their dreams come true in Jesus' name. That Vegas was no longer known as a sin city, but a place where worship happened on every street corner, every night of the week. That the 1040 window wasn't talked about in missions classes as one of the hardest to reach areas of the world, but rather where revival happened. And that Elevate City became a sending agency for all of these places. You see, for Peter, it wasn't a question of if. There was no plan B. This was plan A. If we don't share the gospel, then who will? If we don't tell our friends, then who will? If we don't tell our neighbors, then then who will? If we don't go and proclaim Jesus to the streets and to the cities, then who will? And for us, we need to see that if we want to be resilient disciples, then we can learn from this. We can grow that it is our call, that God has called us to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Verse 19, it says, Therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Church, if you don't entrust your soul to God, then who will you entrust it to? Are you going to entrust it to your friends, the American dream, to your finances, to corporate America? All of these will make terrible saviors. Entrust it to Jesus. Entrust it to your faithful creator who loves you. He is our living hope, and he calls you his. I want to close tonight with this story. The story is about a missionary, and this is how the story goes. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. As a result of this, many missionaries came to northeast India to spread the gospel. The region known as Assam was comprised of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and aggressive headhunters. Into into these hostile and aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from the American Baptist missions, spreading the message of love, peace, and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One missionary succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and two children. This man's faith proved contagious and many villagers began to accept Christianity. Angry, the village chief summoned all of the villagers. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down his two children. As both boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief asked, will you deny your faith? You have lost both your children. You will lose your wife too. But the man replied, though no one joins me, I still will follow. 
The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asks for the last time, I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said the final memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who had ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man. He wondered, why should this man, his wife, and two children die for a man who lived in a faraway land on a continent 2,000 years ago? There must be some remarkable power behind this family's faith. And I, too, want to taste that faith. In a spontaneous confession of faith, he, he declared, I, too, belong to Jesus Christ. And when the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. How would our boldness begin to change if we constantly said, the cross before me, the world behind me? How would our boldness in our workplaces begin to change if we said, the cross before me, and the world behind me? How would our understanding of advancing the gospel and experiencing suffering begin to change if we said the cross before me, the world behind me? With a message like tonight, on a day like today, we have three options. Scripture leaves us with three options. We can either go, we can be a part of what Jesus said when he said the Great Commission, when he said go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We can be a part of bringing the gospel to places it's not, and we can share the gospel with our friends, and we can share the gospel with our neighbors, and we can go. We can send. Some of, some of us tonight, our, our call is to send and to fund missionaries and to fund work across the world and to pay for people's short-term trips at Elevate City and to help be a part of what we're doing around the world, and we can send and we can pray. That's a huge part of sending is to pray like when we get ready to commission this missionary out to Vegas, like set a reminder in your phone every day. Just pray for them. Just pray for them. Pray for it. Or we can sin. And we can be disobedient to the call that God has on our life. We can be disobedient to the great commission, the words that he left us. What will be said about our church? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that the gospel made it here. Thank you so much that the gospel advanced to the nations and it came here to Sandy Springs, Georgia so that we could do church and we could listen to your word and we could worship you. God, we just say that our lives, they are yours. We want our lives to be a living sacrifice for you. And maybe tonight you don't even know what it means to be sent as a missionary because you don't even know Jesus, and tonight you want to meet Jesus for the first time. I just ask that you would pray this after me. God, I entrust my soul to you. I give my life to you. I am done following other things, and I want to live a life of following you, King Jesus.